All right, so if you do have Bibles, uh, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, We're going to continue on from where we've been today. Uh, If you are new here, uh, I want to introduce myself. I don't think I did that earlier, but my name's Andrew, and I have the privilege of being one of uh, several leaders that give some guidance to this community. Uh, Also, uh, it is my privilege this morning to be uh, teaching us from the Word of God. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, please grab one from over there if you want, or download one from the App Store. Uh, before I jump in, though, we have something to celebrate. Uh, is Jacob and Karen Ann here? Jacob? Yeah? Well, we have one of them. Uh, these guys got engaged this week. Isn't that not awesome? Yeah. So if you have great wedding advice or great marriage advice, now is the time to pull them aside and lump the weight of uh, the commitment they're about to make to each other <laughs> on their shoulders. Uh, but yeah, we're going to continue on today in the book of Matthew. Uh, Just a quick reminder, Matthew is one of four books that deals with the life and teachings of Jesus, Uh, and we've been going through it for about a year and a half, and uh, today we are continuing on in chapter 12. So, we're going to dive right in. It says this, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, okay, I I know it's getting a little cliche now, but we're going to stop there for a second. Okay, so one of the reasons that we walk through the Bible uh, sequentially, through the books of the Bible sequentially, is, is we actually believe that the Holy Spirit did not only inspire the writing of the book, but he inspired the, the uh, makeup of the book. And that Matthew isn't just writing and putting stories hodgepodge here and there, but that he actually has intentionality behind it. And what happens is, as, as Christians, sometimes their tendency is to pluck something out of its context. And that can be really dangerous because it, it's actually connected to a larger whole, and we can miss that point. And so whenever you see something that says, like, at this time, what you're supposed to look at is, okay, what's been going on around then? Because Matthew is actually connecting it back to a thought that he's already had. So just to kind of go back uh, to chapter 11, a quick reminder, uh, beginning of chapter 11, chapter 11 and 12 are, are all kind of dealing with different ways that people are responding to Jesus. And so the beginning of chapter 11, we're introduced again to this guy named John the Baptist. He's Jesus' cousin. He's this like forerunner. He comes and he's preaching this heavy message of repentance. And then he gets put in prison. And he starts to have some doubts. Like, I thought Jesus was supposed to be this Messiah, this coming person, this Savior, but I'm in prison. And I thought all this judgment was going to come on evil, but I don't see it happening. And so he sends some followers to question Jesus. And Jesus says, look around, man. Look, look at all the things that I'm doing and, and go back and look at the Bible and you'll see that I am who I say I am. And then Jesus actually starts talking about some of the cities and towns that he's been preaching in and doing miracles in. And he actually confronts them and he says, man, if you look back at our history, some of these cities that were just completely wiped out by God's judgment because of their wickedness, if the things that happened in you happened then, they would have turned, but you're not turning. God himself is showing up in your city and you're missing it. And underlying all this is, as Chris has kind of drawn out for us, is, is this indictment of the religious leadership of that time. And the passage of uh, chapter 11 culminates in this prayer where, where Jesus actually, uh, in prayer, thanks God that he's revealed himself not to the people who are self-sufficient, not to the people who are the religious elite, but to the meek, to the humble, to the everyday, ordinary, average people recognize that they need something more. And he finishes off chapter 11 with this beautiful, beautiful invitation. Listen to this in chapter 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary 
and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus comes with this invitation for rest. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that Jesus is actually going to use this theme of rest to show how the burden of the religious leaders had placed upon themselves and upon the people was not conducive to the rest that was an invitation from God. And he's going to do that by actually confronting them on the Sabbath, which is the day of rest, the day set aside for rest. So we continue in verse 1. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick some of the heads of grain and to eat them. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, Pharisees, as we kind of go through the book, we give them a pretty bad rap. Like, we kind of talk about them as like the snotty religious people. But here's the reality. If you went back to the first century, the Pharisees would not have been the bad guys. In the culture, they would have been the good guys. In fact, if we compare kind of their belief system to Jesus's, they believed almost virtually most of the exact same things. In terms of their theology, the the religious leaders that were the closest to the truth were the Pharisees. You had this group of kind of like the liberal elitists up in Jerusalem called the Sadducees, and they were predominantly made up of the priestly caste. And, you know, they didn't believe in like the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They were like, yeah, we're kind of minimalists. Like, and, and they were compromised. They were bought into the power structures of the time. And then you had this group called the Essenes, and they were like the fundamentalists. They were often like some enclave and like, you know, this world's going to hell in a handbasket, and so we're just going to do our own thing. We're going to have our own little Christian subculture. We're only going to listen to like Essene music and go to Essene school, and everything else is going to happen around us. And yet there's the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, man, these guys cared deeply about their nation, and they cared deeply about the truth. They were rigorous in their study of scripture, rigorous in their theology. Man, if Jesus came today, the Pharisees would be like the reformed theology guys. And that might be a reference that not all of you you know, but there's this uh, group of Christians who uh, we, and and West Village is is kind of part of this, um, who are very like big on truth. And we're very rigorous in like study of scripture. And, And Jesus is coming here and he's confronting these people, but the people around him wouldn't be looking at these guys as the villains. They'd be like, man, these are the elite. These are the guys who really get it. And they're concerned about their nation following right and wrong. And so they see Jesus, this uh, new up-and-coming leader, and they're like, man, you're you're supposed to act a certain way, Jesus. And your disciples, like, they, they should be, like, so concerned with following the letter of the law, and that you're you're like treating it casually. Why was the Sabbath such a a big deal for them? Well, I mean, if we go back, uh, we can look in in Exodus chapter 20, and and we see that it's actually one of the Ten Commandments. It says this in in verse 8 of uh, Exodus chapter 20. So this is the laws of God, like the primary laws that God gives to Moses way back in the day, these laws that shaped the nation of Israel that are supposed to be fundamental to how they live. And listen to what it says. Remember the Sabbath day, by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that was in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the people of Israel were called to represent what God was like, and this was like all-encompassing. So it was a big deal. And and the Pharisees get that it is a big deal. And not only that, but it was something that was supposed to set the Israelites aside. We can jump in over to Ezekiel just as a uh, kind of a uh, picture of this. Ezekiel's uh, speaking to the people of Israel, and he says in uh, in, uh, verse 19 here to to the Israelites, he's a, a prophet who's who's coming, he's challenging Israel, and he's telling them, be faithful to God. He says, uh, God speaking through him, says, I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between us. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. These are supposed to be a sign between God and his people. And that's supposed to be something that other nations would observe. And so this is not only something that is a fundamental part of who they have been shaped to be, but it's actually also supposed to be something that sets them apart from all the nations around them. If you lived at this time, there was no such thing as a weekend. It was a seven-day work week. The times you got a break were like holidays. And yet there was something fundamentally different about the Jewish people because they would take a day off. That made them stand out. And so the Pharisees are concerned because they're saying, not only is this something that's been commanded of us, but it's actually something that's supposed to make us look different. And so we should be really careful about it. But then there's this third thing. You see, throughout Israel's history prior to this, God is constantly calling the people to repentance because they're constantly falling away from him. And one of the things that he's critical of is their lack of respect for the Sabbath. So just imagine for me, you're this guy who's grown up and you know this history of this people who eventually comes to this point where God utterly rejects them and says, hey, you know what? You have been following your own way And so I'm actually going to send you into exile. Now you're living in a time where you you feel like you're in exile because you have this oppressive Roman government around you. You're like, we got to this place because we weren't faithful to the covenant that God made, to the promise that we made with God. And so you're deeply concerned about keeping it. You're working really, really, really hard. But there's something that they missed. See, Israel wasn't just indicted because they failed to keep the Sabbath. They were indicted because their hearts were worshiping the wrong things. There's a prophet named Amos in the Bible. He's like a country shepherd. He's like a farmer. He does like some shepherding. He grows some fruit trees. Yet God comes upon him and calls him to call out the leaders of that time. Man, he has this beautiful poem in chapter 5 of his book, and I'm just going to read part of it for you here. You might see it on the screen behind me. It says this in verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. 
Away with the noise of your songs, for I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. See, what the Pharisees missed is that the problem wasn't just religious adherence. The problem was a heart issue. And the irony of this situation is that the Pharisees are actually stumbling into the same problem that the ancient Israelites before them had. And it was just in a different way. See, some of the ancient Israelites stumbled into worshiping things that were other than God in explicit ways. They would go chasing after idols, worship weird things. And yet, here we have the same problem. The heart of the Pharisees is actually not centered on God. And so this is what Jesus is going to confront. As I was reading through this, uh, one of the, the pastors that I, I had the privilege of just kind of listening to his take on this says this, and I think it's, it's val- uh, valuable for us. It says, the relevance of these verses is to remind us of our own natural inclination to move away from the heart of what it means to be a Christian, from the heart of the gospel, and to move toward the empty framework of religious activity while missing the God with whom the activities are meant to bring us into contact with. So Pharisees were so concerned about doing what was right that they missed the point of what the Sabbath was actually there for, which was a day set aside to rest in God. Now, it might be easy for us at this point to look at those horrible Pharisees and the way they missed it, but let's be honest, man. We do this all the time, all the time. Just this week, I had this uh, conversation with Chris. Uh, we were sitting down together, and, uh, and we were talking about what we call DNA groups. Uh, DNA stands for Discover, Nurture, Act, and it's a small group of three guys or three gals that we uh, encourage to have kind of form from a community group where you kind of meet outside uh, of the community group and, and just get a chance to get into the Word of God together, allow that to shape your heart through the Spirit kind of speaking through His Word into you uh, as, as you get to share some of your life with other people and the Spirit works through them to actually change you, to bring the gospel to bear, the good news of what Jesus has done to bear on your heart and transform you. And we're having this conversation because this is such my, my proclivity, this is such my tendency that uh, I get so focused on the, the means that I forget about the ends. And so... Uh, at one point, Chris like, kind of like shuts me down. He's like, Andrew, the point of a, of a DNA group is not a DNA group. Because I was so concerned that uh, as I've been going through and, and meeting with our, um, our community group leaders, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I love is like we do community so well, but oftentimes this gospel piece can sometimes slip through the cracks. And so I was concerned about that culture. And, and Chris said like, man, Andrew, the, the point is not to have everyone doing DNA groups. The point is gospel transformation. And if you get so fixated on this process and forget about the fruit that's supposed to come from it, you're going to completely miss the point. And it's going to become a law that you just superimpose on people when they don't do it the way you think they should. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I, I get to sit with our community group leaders. And I just want to take a second to say, man, we have some incredible people that lead our community groups, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, like, we do. Come on, let's, let's, yeah. 
And we have some incredible people that shepherd our hearts, that pour into this, that open their homes, that give leadership. And we're super privileged to that. And it's awesome that they desire to see us grow in the gospel. And so uh, DNA is supposed to be a tool. It's just supposed to be a tool that helps doing that. But if it becomes a law, it becomes this thing that we impose. And Chris confronted me on that. And this isn't just me, right? We do this with everything. How many of us, you know, how many of us, you know, diligently read our Bible and yet it becomes just a rote activity? Like we go through it because we know like we're supposed to. It's like the Christian thing to do. It's like, yeah, I read my Bible this morning. Or we do that with prayer. You know, prayer is supposed to be this beautiful encounter with the living God where we get to lay the burdens of our heart in front of him and, and listen to him. And yet it just becomes this thing that we kind of do before meals and, you know, before meetings because we know it's kind of supposed to be the way it is. And rather than being a blessing, it becomes a burden. It becomes a religious activity and anything can happen. Being here on a Sunday morning can be like that. You know, something that is actually supposed to be a huge blessing. Like God so designed us to be in community that he wants us to come regularly together to be with each other to live as family, to worship him together. And how many of us wake up on a Sunday morning like, ah, I have to go to church. I have to go to the gathering. But sun, beach, fetus lake, after. Okay, I'm just going to like get through this. Then I'm going to go home, eat a quick lunch, and then I get to enjoy life. This is, this is a beautiful thing. And yet it can become just some kind of religious activity that we do. And the truth is, this isn't just related to kind of quasi-religious activities. We do this with all of life. Think about it. Parenting. Parenting is a beautiful thing. Like, I mean, I've, I've been a parent now for like six months. So I'm, I'm like junior varsity parent. Like, I mean, there's some of you guys who have like teams like, uh, Mike and Karen Patterson have six kids, Okay. Like, they have the spectrum. Uh, they are like, you know, Gandhi parents or, you know, they're, you know they're, they're up at the hill. I'm down here like junior varsity. And, uh, and yet it's supposed to be a beautiful privilege. Like God actually allows us to foster life and invites us into the process of shaping a human being. That's a really beautiful thing. And yet how often does it become like a, a pride thing? It's not restful because we feel this pressure to have kids that are better than everyone else's kids. And so we look around and, and man, like, there's that person's kids. Woo! Well, my kids are at least better than them, so we're okay. And yet we see someone whose kids are a little bit better behaving, like, oh, man, we're failing. We suck at this. I feel that way all the time with my dog. We do this in relationships. You know, a marriage, relationship like a marriage. It's supposed to be a beautiful thing. It's supposed to be actually a place of rest. It's supposed to be a reflection of the beautiful communion that God has within himself that we get to live out representatively. And yet it becomes this this idea that we get of how it should look and how it should feel. And and no longer is it a, a place of rest. It becomes a rote activity and we go through the motions and we actually forget why it was placed, why it was created in the first place. And our culture does this. You know, we do this with environmental uh, ethics. You know, we look around and we're like, man, 
I'm, I'm recycling and I'm composting. And like, I visited my in-laws and they were throwing stuff in the garbage. Like Albertans. I'm probably going to get lots of angry emails for that, but... <laughs> You know, we, we have this, this innate pride in us that creates things that should be good things into religious things. There's an interesting uh, news story that's been out over the last little bit. Uh, some of you might have heard it. In Vancouver, there's this uh, transgender individual who's uh, been going around trying to get a Brazilian wax. So it's a, a, a man who's uh, saying he's a woman and he's trying to get his uh, stuff waxed. And so uh, there's actually been 16 cases filed with the BC Human Rights Tribunal because uh, there are all these places that are saying, hey, we, don't, we can't do that. Like, we're Brazilian wax. We know how to do one thing, not the other thing. And we're not comfortable with it. And, and here's the, the interesting thing is the BC Human Rights Tribunal, I think it's a good thing. Like, I think there's this, uh, there's this actually this innate desire for humans to say, hey, each person is worthy of dignity and worthy of respect and should be treated as such. Like, that's a good thing. That actually comes from the Bible. That doesn't come from some kind of evolutionary theory. Like if you, if you take an evolutionary theory to its like, lowest common denominator that we are some cosmic accident, that we are some highly evolved animal, then there is actually no argument for human dignity or respect. There isn't. Why does your life matter more than mine if we're both cosmic accidents? Why should I put you before me? Where do we get this idea of human dignity, of respect, of human rights from? It actually comes from the Bible, from this core belief that men and women are created equal in the image of God. In the image of God. And that is not a bad thing. Because if we're made in the image of God, it means there are certain ways that we should be treated. But what happens when this idea of human rights becomes a religion? It actually becomes oppressive. And you see that in this situation where uh, there are shops that have had to close down their businesses because they can't afford to fight this in court or they've had to settle for thousands of dollars. And the thing that was supposed to be a good thing has actually become an oppressive thing to these individuals. Why do we do this? Why do we take the good gifts of God and turn them into these religious structures? I want to give you two reasons. They kind of flow into each other. So the first one is, is we have this innate uh, need as human beings for self-justification. We honestly uh, like to compare ourselves to other people. So what happens here is, is the Pharisees, they're working really, really, really hard. And they're looking around. And I mean, they, they care deeply about stuff. In fact, I didn't, even, I didn't mention this earlier, but they are so strict on the Sabbath law that they have built what they call like a fence around it of other laws. So they have gone down to the finest minutiae of what it means to work. They're like, you can only carry this amount of weight. You can only, this amount of food. You can only take this amount of steps. And now they can look around and say, you're not doing as much as I am. You're not working as hard as me at this. 
Isn't that so true of us? Do you ever have that moment where you're thinking about something in your life and you look around and like, and that, that person's not killing it like I am. I went to four Sunday gatherings this month, four community group meals, DNA twice, and that person like showed up once on a Sunday morning. Ugh. They might not love Jesus as much as me. We do this, right? We play this comparison game. Here's the thing. That's not actually restful. Jesus' invitation to us is to find our rest in his work. But we're so busy trying to justify ourselves. We're working so hard to create our own idea of our salvation that we become exhausted. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They, they had this picture that like, we have to work hard enough so that one day God owes us. That we're going to step before him and say, you can't, you can't send us into exile because look, we held up our part. And they missed the entire part of the scriptures where God said, hey, guess what? You're going to fail, but I'm not. I'm going to come through for you. And in this very moment, he's coming through, to, through, through for them in Jesus, and they're missing it because they're so concentrated on their own self-justification. And ultimately, what that stems from is my second reason, is that they were worshiping the wrong things. See, they had tricked themselves into believing that they were worshiping God, but they were actually worshiping themselves. Uh, there's this great movie, I think it came out in, I don't know, like the 80s. Um, grew up with it. It's called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, yeah, a few, few fans out there. Uh, I watched it with Sh- my wife Shannon the other, other day, and she was like, oh, I hate that movie. Ferris is so rebellious. And I was like, you completely missed the point of the movie. The movie's not about Ferris's rebellion. It's about Cameron, my boy Cameron. Now, some of you, if you're not familiar with the movie, uh, I'll just kind of give you a quick overview. Uh, Ferris is this kind of like likable kid. He goes and uh, borrows his buddy Cameron's dad's Ferrari, and they have like a day out in the town, and they see all these cool things in Chicago. But really, this, this emotional moment happens at the end of the movie. So Cameron's dealing with like depression. He's on meds all the time. And, and part of it stems from his relationship with his dad, and you start to see how that unpacks as the movie goes on. And at the very end of the movie, they've taken this beautiful antique Ferrari, driven it all over Chicago, and they're like, okay, well, we got to make sure that Cameron's dad doesn't know that we, we kind of stole his car and drove it around. So we're going to try and, like, bring the odometer back, and, and, and it's not working. And so Cameron has this freak-out moment. He starts to kick this car. And he starts to shout, like, What do you love? You love a car. See, we learn throughout the movie that Cameron's dad deeply valued his car and it came at the expense of his relationship with his son, with his relationship with his wife. And he worshiped this thing. He wouldn't even drive it. He would just come and polish it and restore it, and pour time and energy and money into this object. And I started to realize, you know, as I've gotten older and and understood more of what's going on in this movie, is that this this was an object of 
of worship. And it actually enslaved Cameron's father. And that enslavement led to destruction. Because this became the ultimate thing that everything else was measured against. And it led to anything or anyone that got in the way of that thing was anathema. I don't have time for you. I don't want to see you. We do this with a lot of things. What happens when we worship things that actually aren't God? Well, we put a weight on them that they can't carry. For some of you here, you love your kids deeply, and that's a good thing. It's actually a really good thing. But what happens when our love turns into worship? You pour yourself into your kids, and you invest in them, and you're there for their every need and their every cry, and then they become teenagers. And suddenly... Mom and dad aren't cool anymore, and they don't want to spend time with you. And that love that you showed them, and that affection, and that investment, it's not paying off the way that you thought, and it starts to eat away at you, and it starts to devastate you. And we can do this with a job. You know, the Bible's clear. We were created to work. A lot of people think, that uh, we were created to, like, relax. You know, we got put in a garden. We're eating grapes and pineapples and all that. No, like, we were actually called to be gardeners. We were called to creatively tend and cultivate this world so that it could flourish. Our job was to be master gardeners. And so when we work, we actually are doing a good thing. The thing that God's created us to do, we're, we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do it in such a way that it creates flourishing for our world and for our humanity. You know, what happens when we start to worship our job? It becomes something that enslaves us. And so we work and work and work because we want to accomplish something. We want to get further. And the things that are really good, that really matter, become second. See, when, when we worship the wrong things, our whole world becomes unaligned. This is what is happening for the Pharisees. They worship the wrong thing, and they completely had their world misaligned, and it created such an issue that in this very moment where they're actually interacting with God himself, they miss him. We can do this in marriage with our spouse. We start to put this weight of expectation on our spouse and we look at them and we're like, I'm working really hard here. What about, what about you? And they let us down. Because they will, they're human. What do we do in that moment? And Jesus is so gracious here. He could have just said, hey, guys, I'm God. This is the way it is. Deal with it. But he doesn't do that. He actually gets down onto the level that the Pharisees will understand. He, he actually goes back into Scripture and says, hey, this is the thing that you guys care about a lot, that you study all the time, you've memorized. 
let me show you where you're wrong. So we go back into verse 3. He says, it says that he answered them, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate of the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. So he starts with a story, a story of Israel's prototypical king. Like, this is the guy that everyone was like, man, this is the guy that everyone should want to be like. He's called in the Bible a man after God's own heart. He is the man. And none of the Pharisees would have had an issue with David taking this consecrated bread, even though technically it was against the law. You see, there was this uh, tradition that the priests would break these 12 loaves of bread. Uh, they put it before the altar of the Lord to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This is ancient uh, religious tradition. And then at the end of it, they would have to eat the bread. This is kind of like in the Catholic Church, if you do communion, uh, at the end of it, if there's any wine left over, the priest has got to jug it, you know, chug it down. True story. Had an Anglican priest friend. Sundays were not always a good day for him. And this was something that because the priests were set apart, because they were sacred, they were supposed to do. And yet, David is this man who's been anointed to be a king of Israel. He comes to, uh, I think the priest's name was Ahimelech, uh, and he says, man, I'm on this mission, and I have to, like, I didn't have time to get provisions, and it's super important. And Ahimelech's like, of course, of course, you need food. I want to give you food. You know, the, the Pharisees would look at that, and they, and they would say, well, you know, David had some urgency in that moment. He was God's special chosen one. And Jesus is looking at them and is saying, yeah, but he was just a pointer towards me because I'm the cunning son of David that God promised that David would come and rule forever. You don't think my mission to save humanity has the urgency? And you're missing. And then he uses a second example. It says, in verse 5, Or haven't you heard in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? And I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And so he's quoting there from Numbers chapter 20, or alluding to Numbers chapter 28, where God actually instructs the priests and the Levites to do a double duty of service on the Sabbath day. And they're working double duty. It's kind of like pastors on a Sunday. Everyone's like, oh, you know, great day off. We're like, no, it's a work day. We got Mondays, it's okay. And, and, and none of the Pharisees have a problem with this. And there's a particular reason, because they, they understand innately that the temple, which is the very place where God's presence was made known to his people, actually superseded this day of rest. That it was more important for the place for God's people to experience his presence, to be made available to them, than it was for every person to rest. And the irony of this, Jesus is saying, someone greater is the temple is here, is what he's saying in that statement is that the place where God's presence was made manifest, you know what's more impressive than that? God himself standing right in front of you. The very presence of God in human form right here. And you're missing it. And he just makes it explicit in, in verse 8. He says this, for the Son of Man, which is this loaded term. And uh, just a quick aside, we haven't talked about this term a lot, but we have a blog and, and there's a blog post on it. So if you ever want to know, like, what does Son of Man mean? Uh, check out our blog. Um, but he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, 
God is Lord of the Sabbath, and, and I'm God. He's making it super clear to them. And so in this moment of grace, he confronts their hearts and he says, hey, guys, it's not about the rules. These were all things that were supposed to lead you to a relationship with me. See, if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, he is the tangible presence of God. He is the person that we find our rest in. He's the one that we get to meet with, the one that we trust to keep things going when we are resting. And ultimately, Jesus is a fulfillment of the Sabbath because in him, all that we need to accomplish is finished. See, Jesus lived the life that we needed to live, the perfect life, a life that was fully committed to God. And yet he died the death that we deserve. He went to the cross for all the times that we rebelled, all the times that we've tried to do things in our own strength and failed. He took that upon himself. And with his very last breath, he cried out, it is finished. And when we start to understand that, we can truly rest. You might be thinking, what do you mean? Start thinking about your list of things that need to get done. What about my marriage? Nope, it's finished. What about my kids? Finished. What about my job? Finished. What about mission? Finished. See, Jesus accomplished what none of us could ever accomplish. And when we allow him to bear the weight that we are completely and utterly incapable of bearing, and that's restful. And when we start to get that, when we start to see the transformation that he has had for us, it changes our hearts. I uh, use this example this morning in our 9:10 prayer time. But uh, when your spouse does something really kind for you and just expresses love to you, uh, oftentimes it just it, it becomes easier to want to show that same expression of love back to them. You know, like you have that special, you know, like maybe uh, your your husband like puts a lot of time and like goes on a like plans a cool date for you. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I, I want to like I want to show love to him and the affection of him. So when we start to get this incredible act of love that God has poured out on us, it changes our hearts in a significant way. It fills them with love. And rather than us going around and looking at other people and saying, you're not measuring up, we start to be filled with mercy. So verse 7, Jesus actually goes to the Pharisees and he quotes for them the Old Testament scriptures from the book of Hosea. He says, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. It's been a few, uh, few times this has happened uh, that I'm aware of, but uh, over the last probably couple decades, there's been several times in uh, the, the islands where there's been a, a, a pastor who's actually had, a youth pastor who's had an affair with a student. Now, I remember hearing about one of these 
incidences, and I was super angry about it. And I was like, man, that guy, man, what, a, what an idiot. And I was upset and frustrated and like, just like condemning. And don't get me wrong, that's not a good thing. That's actually a really bad thing. But that was coming from a place of self-righteousness. That was coming from a place of saying, look at my life. I would never do that. I put good controls in place. What happens when I start to recognize that I have been so faithless to Jesus? That he has loved me, pursued me, been faithful to me, and yet I chase after things on a whim, on a daily basis. And yet he continually welcomes me back. And when, when I start to get that, my response is not one of judgment, it's one of mercy. And so I hear this story, and I'm not filled with, you should have done better, I'm filled with sorrow, with mourning. Because I know the destruction that this act has wrought on that person's heart, on the relationship they've had with their, the, the student, on their marriage, on their church family, if they have kids, on their kids' lives. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, but in that moment, my heart turns to mercy. And so, how does this play out? When we start to rest in Jesus' finished work, how does this play out in our everyday lives? Think about it for a second in terms of job. We have lots of medical professionals, part of uh, West Village, some nurses, some doctors, some uh, other kind of medical-ish people. <laughs> One of the things I think is, is, is true for a lot of medical professionals is, is that they deeply desire to want to help people. A good thing, right? We'd all agree, good thing. But what can happen when we don't rest in Jesus in that? And people start to fail us. And we help them. We give them good advice. We tell them how they can get better. And they ignore us. And they get themselves into a worse and worse position. Or we deal with really awful people. Nurses are like one of the most highly abused professions in the world. They get hit and spit on and horrible things. We take that home with us. And it becomes this weight that can crush us, or we get cynical because people have failed. We have failed. We haven't been able to fix everyone. But what happens when we rest in Jesus? It actually means we can pour ourselves fully out. And at the end of the day, we get to go home and trust that it's not up to us to transform or fix people. It's the same for people in ministry. Some of you work in parachurch ministry, some of you, like me, work for. Uh, part of West Village. Man, we work with people deeply and we want to see their lives transform and their hearts transform. I have to remind myself of this all the time. It's not my job to transform hearts. And if I take that weight upon myself, it becomes a religious rote activity. It becomes a job. And it will crush me because I'm not capable of doing it. But when I actually look to the cross and see that it is finished, that Jesus has done what needs to be done, 
and I rest in that. I can love and pour myself out. And at the end of the day, I don't take that burden upon myself. What about the high school student? Some of you are here in high school and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know about any of this stuff. You talk about marriage and Pharisees and I don't even know. Well, think about the things that weigh you down. Social pressures. Like we have like social media that is like this weight of expectation for how you should act and how you should look. What happens when you look to the cross and Jesus says, it is enough, and because I am enough, you are enough? You rest in that. What about in our relationships, like our marriage? Man, it's a good thing and a, a really good thing to work hard and pour ourselves into our marriage. But when our spouse inevitably fails us, or when we fail our spouse, we don't worship that thing. So we recognize that we're not looking to our spouse to satisfy us or fulfill us. We're actually looking to Jesus. Because he is enough. And that gives us grace and mercy so that we can pour out on our spouse when they inevitably fail. We mourn when they do things that are destructive. Rather than walking into the house and having this list of things that we expect them to do and laying that on them, we can give them the benefit of the doubt. We do this with kids. Rather than seeing your life worth measured by how well your kids behave against everyone else's, what happens when you rest in Jesus? You get to joyfully nurture your kids, pour into them, love them, and you don't have to compare them to other people. They don't have to be better than everyone else's kids. You just get to be faithful with caring for them. I want to invite the band up as we end here, and I want to say a couple of things. First of all, Jesus doesn't ever abolish the Sabbath, but he does say it's fulfilled in him, and I think that's significant. I think it's significant to know that the Sabbath is not supposed to be this ritualistic law that we follow religiously, but there is wisdom in saying it is a healthy habit of grace, a healthy discipline to set aside a day of our life, a week, to just be, to take space away from our job, from the work, from the busyness of our household, come together as a family and rest in Jesus. There's just a wisdom in that to say, hey, I actually am going to take this space to trust that God's in control for a day. And so I want to encourage you not to look at this as a, as a, a law that you need to follow, but to look at it as an invitation towards a blessing. If you're here today and you are so tired out and you're working so, so hard to try and be perfect, cultivate the perfect family, be the perfect employee, and you have no rhythm of just space to rest in Jesus, I want to invite you into this practice. It's not always easy, but when we start to get it, it is always good. We're going to get to respond now in a couple of different ways. 
First, we're going to get to respond through giving. When we rest in Jesus, the stress of the financial world and financial responsibilities that we have, and that actually gets carried by him. And one of the ways that we regularly discipline our hearts to understand is through, through offering. Offering can indeed become a religious activity. It can be something that we do dutifully. And yet Jesus' invitation is one of participation. He says, man, I'm doing something through this church, in this city, in this world. I'm inviting you to participate in it with the resources that I've actually provided to you. So we invite you to give like Jesus has given to you, willingly, joyfully, and sacrificially. Second way we get to respond is through singing. How many of us are insecure about our voices? You have those moments where you're like, I don't want to sing. Let me remind you that this is a gift. And we have a language that transcends any culture, any language group, melody. I've been to different places in the world, and everyone sings to Jesus. And we get a privilege, a blessing, to just be able to let ourselves go in this moment. So I want to invite you, don't worry about who's around you. Enjoy the blessing of expression through art, through creativity in music. We're going to take communion. And this is a symbol of why we get to rest. So we take the cracker and dip it into the wine or grape juice. We're reminded that it was Jesus' body that was broken for us, his blood shed for us. And that because he did what we could not, we can now rest in him. And finally, Ken and Rena are going to be at the back. And if you're here today, and you're just feeling so broken down, You've been trying so hard, and the weight of that is crushing you. And Ken and Marie just want to sit with you and bring you to the place of rest. To lay those burdens down at the feet of the only person who can truly handle them for you. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess that my tendency is to want to do things in my own strength. My heart worships the wrong things all the time, and because of that, it causes me to justify my own actions and look around with judgment instead of mercy. And yet, Father, you have not shown judgment to us. You took the judgment that we deserved upon yourself. And in its place, you gave us your life. You invited us into your family, and you continue to be faithful to us even when we continue to chase after other things. So, Father, the things that you have given us as gifts, I pray that they not become empty religious activities, but that we see them for what they are, which are invitations into a relationship with you. I ask that this week as a church family, and when we experience our families, our marriages, when we're at school, when we're going through social media, when we're in our jobs, when we're in our professions, that you would be our rest. As we get to go through these great disciplines, reading our Bibles, prayer, silence, solitude, whatever they are, Father, 
that they wouldn't just be going through the motions, but that they would be places where your spirit meets us and transforms us. Amen.